0: Today's message coming from Hebrews chapter 13. I want to have a little introduction before I bring it. The title of today's message is Marriage and Money. I want to, in the introduction, go backwards and say Money and Marriage, because there may be those of you in this sanctuary, although I doubt it because I don't preach on money a whole lot. So it's not you, but those who might be listening to me on the various forms of our social media. You say, oh, every time I listen to a pastor preach, he's talking about money. Well, I'm not talking about you giving us money. We've already taken the offering. There's nothing on any of our social ministries that tells you how to give to this ministry. So I'm not talking about you giving money. I'm talking about your relationship and your attitude about money. Next, which we're going to talk about first, is marriage. In our culture, marriage is not very well thought of. It's considered to be about contracts and commitments, and I'll love you as long as I feel like it. When I stop loving you, then I'll head out to greener pastures. And uh, we we don't have that. commitment to marriage. And if you see most of the culture, what happens is it used to be in our culture and in the churches, people fell in love, got engaged, got married, and then moved their lives. Now it's people fall in lust, go live together, buy a house, have a child or two, and then consider getting married. I think, and, and studies have proven it, that marriage is good for children. It provides them psychological stability. It also provides them with economic stability. And you will see the studies that says that children who are raised in a home that, are, that is secure in marriage do better. I think marriage is good for society. I think a society is benefited by marriage. But that's not what we're going to be talking about today. I'm not going to change and try to change the culture. This message is to those who state that they are believers. And it's what our requirements upon us as believers now, what I find interesting is a lot of times, and as I kind of concluded the last message, is that oftentimes people will complain that I talk a lot about doctrine and not enough about application. And as I said last week, it's easier to talk about doctrine because we can argue about that. Application means you got to live it, and it's a lot tougher to live some of these things than we like to admit. Now, we're going to look at some things that our culture says is out of date, It's passe, that it doesn't understand the new norms of life. But to take and discard what the scripture says about marriage and money is to have a cafeteria approach to the scriptures. Oh, I like this. I like that Jesus loves me. I like that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. I like those passages. But then when it comes to things like, I'm supposed to love you as he loved you, not so much. But I don't get to pick and choose. If this is the word of God, and it is the word of God, then it is entirely the word of God, even the parts that we agree with and even the parts that we disagree with. So here it goes. Some of you may not like it. You can get mad at me. I'm just a messenger. I'm just going to state what God has said. Get mad at him. And if you get mad at me, I guess I'm in good company. So in verse, chapter 13 of verse 4 of Hebrews, I'm going to only read a half a verse. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. We are to view marriage as honorable, as something that is, that is good. Now, when I was a young man, I didn't appreciate this verse, and I used to kind of say things that really bother Libby. One of the I, I used to say things like, "Marriage is a great institution, but so is San Quentin." And she would get so upset with me. And then, you know, being a young man and kind of dumb, I I I expected her. To, well, it's just a joke, but she took it. So I learned, as the scriptures teach, to treat marriage as honorable. It is a good thing. It is a necessary thing. So we are to hold marriage in honor. Now, what is marriage? We're going to skip over. And for those of you who have your Bible, if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 5, we'll start with verse 22. if I can find it. Okay. Verse 22. Wives. Right off the bat, this is where our culture disagrees. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The scriptures never say that the wives are subservient or less than the husbands. It says that the wives had a particular role and they are to be subject to their own husbands. They're not to be subject to all men. It's an understanding that we are they are to be subject to. For, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. The picture here, and we're going to see it, More flushed out is that Christian marriage is more than just Christian marriage. Christian marriage is to show the world and the church that the home is the same as the church. That when you go home, you're going to church. And when you go to church, you're going home. It's the same. That when we see it, that Christ is the head of the body, and the scriptures give us that wives are to be subject to their husbands. So, wives, you're stuck. For those of you who aren't yet wise, make sure you can follow this idiot. Because if you think you're smarter than him, then you're always going to want to take over the rule. So, find somebody who's got a clue. I know you love him, whatever, but you've got to be able to follow him. Now, notice it's going to say husbands love your wives just as christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her now there's two different things here the wife doesn't have to agree the wife can even hate it but in hating it she can still follow it she go, this guy's an idiot we're going to go off the edge of the cliff but he's driving the car oh well husbands no matter how The wife responds, no matter how the wife is unlovable, we are to love our wives, not as the world tells us to love our wives, but we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So it is my responsibility to always consider the needs of my wife because it is my responsibility. Most guys just want to do their own thing. This is not what it says. Our response as husbands is to love our wives as Christ loved the church, no matter how she acts. And notice in this, that as we read on, it never tells the husband that he has authority to tell the wife what to do. It is the wife who voluntarily subjects herself to her husband. The husband never demands That subjectivity. We don't have that authority. The wife has to do so willingly. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So that's what Christ does for the church. Husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. So what I want you to see here, and what I disagree with even some very brilliant minds and people who know the scriptures, and there's a particular uh, gentleman, I have great respect for, has written a lot of books. He's Jewish. And his statement is, is that women are to make men better. That is not what the scripture says. The scripture says it is the obligation of the husband to make sure that the wife and the family is better because of him. Now, where the wives, if you will, have a great Influence here is their children. So that when the sons, especially and the daughters are raised and grown up, that they are ready to be in that role. That the husband, that their sons are ready to be the leaders of their family, that they can know the scriptures and teach and make the family better. But unfortunately, in our culture and in our And the church as a whole, quite frankly, it's the women. There are more women in church. There are more women doing ministry. There are more women, and that ought not to be. That is counter to the scriptures. Yes, women had an impact on Jesus' ministry, but he called 12 men to do the ministry. They were there as support staff, if you will. But today, it seems that most churches depend on the women to do things. And that ought not to be. Men need to stand up, grow up, not just physically, but spiritually, so that they can lead the family. So again, ladies who aren't yet married, expect your future husband to be ahead of you spiritually. Because if he's not, you're always having to wait on him to hear God. You may know what God is wanting to do 18 months before he does. But you've got to wait because he just doesn't have his act together. But if he is the one who's spiritually leading the family, then he, and then when he messes up, you go, God, you've got to talk to him. Because he's, he's messing up. You either gotta change him or you gotta change me because you know this is going well. We men are to be those spiritual leaders. And you know, if you if you watch, if a non-believing family comes and the wife acknowledges Christ as her savior, and she wants to get involved in church. She gets involved in church. But frequently the children don't. They may show up. But after mom, after they grow up old enough to leave home, they're never coming to church. And certainly the husband never comes. And quite frankly, he's often irritated that she's gone on Sunday mornings to church when he wants to do whatever. But when the husband comes to the Lord. Very, very, more often than not, the family comes to the Lord. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself and the wife must see to it That she respects her husband. And again, if you think your husband's an idiot, it's hard to respect him. And therefore, again, you need to find someone that you can respect. Because that is what God is expecting of you. And again, the whole point of a Christian marriage, it's it's why I'm not talking to the world. Because the world, we haven't a hard enough time doing this. I don't expect the world to. We are in our home to be a mini church. And it'd be obvious to those around. But notice it says that the two shall come together and become one flesh. We're going to go back to Hebrews. And it says this. And the rest of four. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Our Catholic brothers and sisters have it messed up. They think that the only reason for, I'm going to try to keep this PG. How do I keep it PG? Um, When those things that moms and dads do, it's It's not just for producing kids. Now, our Catholic brothers and sisters say that's the only reason you do that thing is to produce children. Which I guess is its own method of birth control because that's why you're doing it sometimes. I don't want any more kids. But God says, no, no, there's something to this. So the two shall become one flesh, which means that when you do that, that there is something that bonds you relationally to it. You become more and more bonded. It's relational. And that's the problem with having multiple partners. It destroys those relationships. Second, it does produce children. And third, it's fun. Sorry. And I, yeah, and... And Woody Allen once said, is, is that dirty? And he goes, if you do it right. So again, it's, you know, as I said, the marriage bed is undefiled, which means it's okay. And again, the theologians back many years ago, when basically said all this was wrong. No, it's not. When it's within the marital confines, it's something that's beautiful. It is not sinful. It is not debased. It is something that is undefiled. So, as I used to, to say, in the marriage situation, if you want to hang from a chandelier, go ahead. Because the marriage bed is undefiled. He says the fornicators and adulterers, God's going to judge. But when you are having relations with your spouse, that is a blessed thing. Now, Problem is, I wait too much for that to happen. So, I'm trying to stay out of trouble, but I can't. Let's turn now to First Corinthians chapter six, uh, verse fifteen through twenty. He says, "This do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ?" Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that you, the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her, or he says the two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him So he's saying you are the Lord's. And when you conduct your body in certain ways, it is as if you are entering that relationship as if it was with Jesus. And Jesus has nothing to do with prostitutes other than loving them. But not that way. He says that we are to understand that, that the body is affected. And says, flee my immorality. For every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man Sins against his own body. You will hear people talk about mortal sins and all that kind of stuff. Paul does make a distinction on on certain sins and he does say, adultery and fornication is a sin that you commit against your own body. It's just not a sin. What does he mean by that? There is something unique About, I can't keep it, PG, sexual relationship. There's something unique about it. And I'll and I'll show you how it's unique. If you go to a child and slap the child in the face, the child will have some red marks and whatever, and may be angry and may figure, why did you slap me? But if you Abuse that child. That child will be scarred for the rest of its life. There is a uniqueness to that abuse. And what Paul is saying is you can't sin against the body and it not affect you all of your life. Now he's will say in, in, in other scriptures, and I want you to remember, he says that those who commit adultery, those who do a number of things he says basically you're condemned but he then says but such were some of you you see god forgives everything not just my sins, and not the sins i think are terrible not the sins i'm talking about god is a forgiving god but he's saying that there is an impact it has on your body or do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit who is in you whom you have from God and that you are not your own for you have been bought with a price therefore glorify God in your body he's saying instead of doing these immoral things with your body you ought to be glorifying God with your body cuz God bought it you don't want to be his do whatever you want to do but if you're his then he owns you and therefore we are to glorify him In our body. To follow this up, he will say in 1 Corinthians 7, starting with verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer and to come again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So again, the scriptures are identifying that the marital bed is undefiled. That if the wife's in the mood, usually the husband says, praise the Lord. But when she's in the mood, even if he has a headache, He's supposed to satisfy her requirement. And likewise, the wife, it's you are a part of this relationship, and God is saying that you are to do these things because if you deny one another, what happens is then there is temptation and problem. So, marital relationships in marriage. Is proper, blessed, and good, sanctioned by God, not to feel that you are somehow doing something dirty. But sexual relationships outside of marriage is banned. Now we go back to Hebrews, now that I've gotten in trouble enough there. Make sure. That your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Notice it says that your character is free from the love of money. It doesn't say that money isn't necessary. It doesn't say that money is evil. As a matter of fact, we're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. This is this. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The scriptures never say that money in and of itself is a bad thing. But it does say your love for money is a bad thing and can lead you to many problems and difficulties and even at worst take you away from the faith it's one of the reasons that many people never get to faith because there's always an excuse well i need to finish my education why so i can get a job why so i can make money why so i can make more money why so i can make even more money and all you got to do is look at the world Everybody's condemning, and rightfully so, the Russian oligarchs. And apparently, they seized a yacht that cost $600 million. I can't imagine a boat costing $600 million or an airplane that costs $200 million a year to fly. They're billionaires. They're people who own in our country sports franchises, they're worth billions of dollars. They never retire. Because money is never enough. It's always more and more and more. And once your ambition is to acquire money, it never satisfies you because it's an appetite. I'll use the same analogy I used. You can have the biggest dinner and stuff yourself so much that you couldn't force in another morsel. And yet in the morning, you'll be hungry. You can buy that awesome car. Then you'll want a motorcycle. And then in a few years, you want a different car because this one needs to be worked on. Our appetites are never satisfied. And when our appetite is for money, it never is satisfactory when we, it's never enough. And so it can cause us in the pursuit of money. To wander from the faith. Jesus. i to say Jesus had a right. Who am I to tell Jesus what he's doing? But Jesus understood. When he said. Don't accumulate for yourself things here. Because at most, you can only spend it for a few years. And then you'll leave it to some idiots who will spend it very quickly. And you don't get to take it with you. And as I say often, you'll have never seen a U-Haul trailer at the back of a hearse. Because you can't take it with you. But Jesus does say you can send it ahead. Go back to Hebrews. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my help. I will not be afraid what will man do to me? He says, the writer here, that we are to be content with what we have. I thank God that the scriptures are not just limited to one letter or one author because it helps us to fulfill some things. So it says, well, be content. Well, if you look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, it says this. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble beings, and I also know how to, get to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice two things here. He says, I have learned to be content. It doesn't come naturally. The natural is, I want, I want, I want. You don't think I, I misunderstand that? See any baby. The baby cries for what it wants. If it's hungry, it wants food. If it's dirty, it wants to be changed. And it doesn't care how tired mom is. It's me. And you have to learn. And then all of a sudden, it's like, you've got to teach the child. Well, you're supposed to share, but it's my toy. Yeah, but you're supposed to share it with your brother or your sister or your friend, but it's mine. They'll break it. We teach because we are to learn. And God teaches us to be content in whatever circumstance. And Paul goes, I've been in a mall. I've been hungry and I've been rich. I've had people abandon me and hate me and love me. And support me. I have learned to be content. It is a process. And we need to learn to be content in the Lord. There are times I'll ask God, you know, is there some big heavenly problem with me being rich? Then I look at the rest of the world and go, okay, I'm sorry. But, but my expectation of rich is being like the oligarchs, you know, buying big, big boats and doing great things. I'm going, yeah. and then there'll be times when like somebody will actually uh you know I'll I'll close an estate or when you know get a, a, a sizable chunk of change and, and I'll pay the bills and I'm grateful to God that I got the money to pay the bills and I, and I go, there ain't much left, God. Thank you for allowing me to pay the bills, but you know, could have had a little more. And and I think what God's doing is that you need to trust. Because I Kind of tend to think that if you had your everything, you'd be doing your own thing. So he's trying to teach me, and I'm 69, and I'm trying to learn, be content and whatever, sir. But notice he says, because we love we love this verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We pull that out of context. The context is I've learned to be content. And therefore, he strengthens me. So, when I'm hungry, he strengthens me. And when I have no friends, he is my friend. He strengthens me. When I have doubt, he brings me faith. He strengthens me. So, don't, it's a great verse. It's in a context of need. And notice it says, for I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Those are the quotes from Jesus, who quotes the scripture. God's there. God knows when you're hungry, because he knows every hair on your head. He knows when you rise up, he knows when you lay down. he has an appointed time for you to be with him. he will never forsake. And then just as the Lord, as Paul said, strengthened, the Lord is my helper, I will not be of. What will man do to me? as they can kill the body but they cannot kill the soul. And the worst thing man can do to me is kill me, which I guess ultimately is the best thing they can do because then I get to be with the Lord. It's a win win. But the point is, you gotta trust him, you gotta believe him. He has made us promises. Those promises are steadfast and true. As we started this service, Great is thy faith. As we read the scriptures, for the Lord is good and his faithfulness lasts forever. Not just when you're hungry, not just when you're full, not just when you have no friends or that when you are secure in friendship. He is faithful. So our marriage Needs to reflect the church. Our finances need to reflect what our character is. Is our character, and some of you will get this reference and some of you won't, is our character Silas Marner or is our character one of giving and loving? Are we hoarders or are we givers? What you do reflects who you are i'll tell this on my wife and then i'll close she was talking to a few women many years ago so there's none of the ladies in the church so i'm not talking about any y'all and there was about two others in her and they said if they had an extra five dollars what would they do with it and two of the three ladies said that they'd buy themselves something lipstick or whatever. My wife said she'd buy something for the kids, because my wife is a giver. Sometimes it's my job to come up with the money so she can give, but she's a giver. I tend to be a little more miserly, but you know, I, I, they get. I have paper and I write something on the front and then I write something on the back. You know, I'm, I'm Scott. So, um, but she's a giver. You can tell her character. By what she does, I'm asking you not to examine anybody else, but examine yourself. If you're married, how is your marriage? Does it reflect who Jesus? Is? If it doesn't, I encourage you to do so. How is your finances? Do they reflect your character? They do, but they do it. They reflect it positively. Negative? and are you always striving always wanting more and more and more rather than being content not that there's anything wrong with if you will ambition but not the sense of their ambition that leads you away from god but the ambition that leads you to him Again, I'd rather talk about um, doctrine. Jesus loves me, this I know. Or the Bible tells me. This says, my marriage needs to be like Jesus. Like the church. My attitude about money needs to be like Jesus. Not like, and that I need to have contentment. So for those of you who wanted application, here it is. Deal with it. And all God's people said.